Hello, I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom with our host, the Reverend Joseph Hinchy and Lisa Fertini Campbell. Now here's Lisa. Praise be Jesus Christ. Now and forever. Welcome again, everyone, back to the next episode in the series, Duke and Altum, as I, Lisa Fortini Campbell, follow St. Peter, our first Pope, out into the deep, guided by Father Joseph Henschey of the Congregation of the Sacred Stigmata. And hello, this is the, Hello, Lisa. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Yes, indeed, let us do. And so... Let me remind everyone where we have been in this segment of these reflections. You have begun to teach us something about the call and message of St. Peter. Uh, we've begun with his call by the Lake of Genesis, as, as well as many other places mm-hmm. where the Synoptic Gospels talk about his mm-hmm. call. And now you're going to begin to deal a little more deeply into his vocation before we ultimately get to Peter's fall, the Mm -hmm. bookend to the call and fall. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's begin our reflection with a prayer. The name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Mary, Mother of the Church, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, Father, I'll let you begin by giving us a little overview of where you'd like to go in this reflection. Well, as is the overall theme of our reflections in this series, we would like to go out into the deep of these various biblical passages attributed either to Peter or which are about Peter. So we can really go out into the deep or fathom the depths of Peter's vocation and find in his call many of the elements in his fall. The Lord looked at him for a long time and and said, from now on you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Then Peter denied him three times, cursed the Lord, and once again the Lord looked at him and caught Peter's eye, and he realized what he had done, went out and wept bitterly, but becomes the great missionary of mercy and forgiveness and conversion. So today we'll look a little bit about how Peter tells us that all vocations is really a call to humility and to trust. Whatever it is that the Lord is asking us to do in the church, in the world, in our lives today, we could say that Peter is the great teacher of what our uh, our vocation really is. Whatever comes of God is certainly a vocation to humility and to trust. So, <clears throat> There's almost a tendency among human beings, I believe I've mentioned this before, but I grew up in New England, and as a young man growing up, young boy, whenever there was a death notice or a marriage notice, it wasn't unusual to find that so-and-so's descendants came over on the Mayflower. So 
I imagined this Mayflower to be a gigantic uh, vessel with all kinds of people on there. But the great scholar Nathaniel Philbrick wrote several books on all of this. He wrote the uh, In the Heart of the Sea and another volume called The Mayflower. So maybe not as many who had the claim really did come over on the boat. At any rate, this was a way of talking, like as my old grandpappy used to say, and these kinds of colloquial expressions. The biblical vocation is totally different. Every one of the people who seem to be called by the Lord, or are clearly called by the Lord, they always say, I'm unworthy, I can't do this, it's beyond me, I don't know how, I'm a poor speaker, all of these excuses. My tribe is the smallest of Israel, and my family was the least in that tribe, and I was the least of the children. So from all of this, we've realized that the Lord calls the Anuim, the ordinary poor of the Lord, to carry out his dream. So as you say, a lot of us, looking back into our history and genealogy, are always looking for uh, a princess, a king, uh, an important person, mm-hmm. a connection to the Mayflower. Mm-hmm. We want to aggrandize ourselves in mm-hmm. some ways with a connection to a glorious mm-hmm. past. Mm-hmm. But in the Bible, it's the opposite. Yeah, Everyone mm-hmm. is is saying, I am small, I'm not worthy, mm-hmm. but the Lord is reaching in to take the smallest and least of all of us, to raise us to great heights. And of course this makes great sense because these legends or these stories and these revelations could easily have remained in the verbal form. But this book was written to be read. So for the readers of all generations down through the long centuries and millennia since all of these events took place, it is a great encouragement to any one of us who has ever struggled in vocation. So take, for example, Moses. In his descendancy, there doesn't seem to be any mark of greatness in any direction. The genealogies in First Chronicles record his descendants only in the briefest manner. Moses was a man of God, whose sons were given the name of the tribe of Levi. Well, there's not much more about him that we know. Most of these held positions of treasures in the sanctuary. Shemuel, son of Gershom, son of Moses, was the officer responsible for the treasuries, as we read in First Chronicles 26. Moses refused all glory, even for his ancestors. The attitude of his is all the more unusual because he lived in a period in which men had not yet any clear idea of anything after death. Hence, most of his contemporaries placed all their hope in their name living on after them, being carried on by an extensive and glorious descendancy. We might look, to, look to, tended to look back and see if there are any greats in our line, whereas here we find there is a very humble source for these great servants of the Lord. So the great respect for handing on one's name is one of the major aspects of earlier vocation. Jesus himself says this when he says, O Lord, I have revealed your name and made your name known. So Moses seems to have identified himself totally, not with his background, but his cause as a faithful servant of God. 
Moses in no way seems tempted to give his own name to his work. He seemed called to supreme honor to bestow his own name on the chosen people. <clears throat> we read, for example, from you, O Lord, I have a great people to send, or will a great people to send. But Moses was convinced he was but a servant, a weak instrument in the hands of Almighty God, a link in the long chain of divine interventions in time. I'm often remembering those little mosaic pieces in the works of art in St. Peter's in Rome, just a small <coughs> mosaic stone or the famous proverbial triangle in the symphony with just ordinary people. So <coughs> his task is to bring about the promise that was made, some estimate at least 500 years earlier, to Abraham. And this is how Moses, in all humility, understood God. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We find this in Exodus chapter 3. And this is how the humble Moses would refer to God in his prayer, as we find in Exodus 32. See, there are two Somehow. names of God. I am is one, and he's a God of mercy, tenderness, and compassion is the other in chapter 32. Well, so it's interesting what you say because I think so many of us in this day and age, especially here in America, we we want to be famous and our name known forever. And somehow that our name then gives us a, a sense of eternity. But what you're saying is that Moses wasn't concerned about that at all. Mm. What he wanted was to be of use. And he was of use and that was enough. He took his place in the mosaic of the mm. Lord and... Mm -hmm. was a was a beautiful glittering piece mm -hmm. we remember him but not because of a great lineage he produced mm -hmm. but because of a great work he fostered that, that he became almost identified with the word of god moses may, might mean son of and this whole idea of communicating what was done for his people so in exodus 3 is the first revelation of god's name i am then in Exodus 32, I am the God of mercy and compassion, slow to anger and rich in mercy. So in chapter 32, verse 13, he says, Remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, your servants, to whom by your own self you swore and made the promise, I will make your offspring as the many as the stars in heaven, and all this land which I promised I will give to your descendants, and it will be their heritage forever. So Moses refers in the traditional way to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the covenant who initiated all this and in his unfolding divine revelation makes better known with each passing step the mercy which is behind his call. So this is Moses with hard community, a thought of himself, totally immersed in the task to which God had invited him. Moses is revealed almost as identified with his mission as Jesus becomes the word, the word incarnate to communicate the revelation of God and of his plan. That His task is the well-being of the people of God. This is Moses' only concern. He suffered and worked hard for this people. The salvation of Israel was his vocation. This is what it was all about. 
we have a bit of a contrast in the Testament. On the one hand, we are to be the most meek and humble of all. Yet on the other, we are to light a candle and let this candle shine before the church and not put a bushel basket over it, but just to testify to God by living a good example. So this is Moses then. Moses prays to the God of promise. This reveals another facet in his vocation, because as we'll see in all of this, that Peter's vocation, as is our vocation, is a call to humility and to trust. So he appeals not to the God of just his own day, nor even to the God of what once was. He remembers the promises made to Abraham. So therefore, Moses' prayer is to the God of promise. He's reminding God of the great promise that he offered to his people. So in, in many kinds of um, academic studies on persuasion, we talk about there being an appeal to authority as a way to bolster our arguments. Mm-hmm. We want to tell someone something <clears throat> and raise our credibility, and so we appeal to some authority. And it's interesting in Moses's case that his appeal to authority isn't any glittering genealogy of his own, I'm the son of a king, but an appeal to a genealogy of, of holiness, of the God of Abraham, mm-hmm. Isaac, and Jacob. And this is what will be said later by Hebrews chapter 11, that Moses did not want to be known as a noble member close to the Pharaoh. He rather associated with the sufferings of God's people to get them across the desert. So <clears throat> the threatening God, though, sometimes comes across in the ancient writings And it seems that Moses really knew that. And this is the way he prays in this same Exodus 32, where God reveals himself as the God of mercy. Lord, this people has committed a grave sin. They made a God for themselves out of gold. And yet, if it pleased you to forgive this sin of theirs, but if not, blot me out from the book that you have written. So therefore, Moses is not the important one reality here. It's the plan of God. So Moses realized that this is God revealing himself as the God of merciful promise. No substitute God of present gold, whatever it may be, whatever idol anyone might be today, they are invited to break that idol, remove the veil from their eyes so that they might see the almighty merciful God as calling them forward ever upward and ever more deeply into his word. And so this is the idea that we are but stones in the highway of the king. And it is God who travels over us from the past and into the future and into every corner of the earth. But that level of humility is, is hard for people raised in the culture we have now, which tends to aggrandize the highway more than the the traveler, the holy traveler on it, don't you think? Well, the word of God deeply fathomed is very often counterculture. We cannot imagine in, in this culture in which we live today, which sometimes is described as a culture of death, what God is promising is a new life, a new beginning. So it's very true. What God asks is difficult. Future, good, difficult, but possible. 
And that, those are the main elements of hope. So there's no substitute God, no icon or no other blocking of the eyes of faith, but to look on the God of mercy, the God of the desert, the God of the commandments, promising us an eternal happiness. So what Moses communicates is, it is difficult, this exodus migration, this ambitious crossing of the desert of our time is absolute difficult. It is absolutely difficult. But repeatedly it comes across through Moses as possible. It is possible because of God's infinite uh, mercy and ever-present accompanying of us in the journey of life. Moses always preferred God over any one or all of his present gifts. The proverbial, he chased God of the gifts rather than trying to be absorbed in, into any one gift of God. His vocation, Moses' vocation, is always toward the future, toward the promised land. This is the dream that moves the Bedouin across the difficulties of the desert. <clears throat> he preferred the God of promise to any one of the promises of God. <clears throat> and as all the lesser promises were achieved, they merely opened up over ever new vistas, broadened horizons over to the ultimate or up to the ultimate province, promise of God. No present good could ever substitute for the future good of the promised land. This task is possible. So it's... Um I think what I take away from what you're saying is how much the story of Moses should encourage me in hopefulness, in the possibility. Day-to-day -day life might weigh us down in its difficulties, mm -hmm. but seeing the bigger picture, seeing the promised land is the, is the goal of all of our lives. If we can keep ourselves lifted up mm -hmm. out of all of that, then the burdens become more Easy to bear. But as we know, water itself runs downhill. <clears throat> and we usually run out of fervor once the initial enthusiasm wears off. But it seems Moses' gift, which was absorbed by Peter, Peter seems to be a man of the tradition, seemed to understand that the God of mercy really has come in Jesus Christ. And Peter would be the one who will experience that in a special way. First hand, he denied the Lord publicly three times and cursed him. And yet, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So therefore, Moses' vocation, as was Peter's, was steeped in difficulty. There were continual challenges to be met, adjustments always to make in the desert march, corrections, purifications to be endured, looking for moisture, looking for food and drink, and so on. How many times the sands shifting under his feet were a constant reminder of the continually changing circumstances of life. But the great struggle down to every person when one's best efforts seem to have been built on shifting sand. In, in this time of enormous difficulty, Moses is deeply convinced of the possibility of his mission because of God's initial and repeated promise down through the centuries, write to us, I shall be with you, I will help you. But that's a hard thing sometimes for us to believe and trust in, isn't it? So that's mm -hmm. why you, you say that 
that the Peter's call is to humility and to trust, mm-hmm. that we, we have to have them both. And there is a kind of a tendency to, to look down and in. So as we are reminded in every Eucharist, lift up your heart. Every day, lift up your heart. So it's interesting, uh, this phenomenon, that the narrative of the call of Moses is repeated twice. It's found in Exodus 3, and then again in Exodus 6, and maybe a third time in Exodus 32. So there are many opinions why this is so. Some say, well, this is just an example of two separate traditions, two separate uh, um, presentations of the Word of God, uh, which is as good as far as it goes. Or there's the other possibility, as we saw with Peter, this is a vocation being offered every day. Uh, it is being offered to us here today, right now, to each one of us. And with each vocation, God's promise is repeated. I shall be with you. I will help you. So the theme of vocation is central to sacred scripture. We need to be prophets in the broad sense of that term to mold on our lives the, on the words of another, meaning on the word of God. And because it is a word, they, they, they had to record who answered it, who responded to this, and they become our great models. As we read from St. Paul, Scripture is full of examples of how people who did not give up were helped by God. I think that's around chapter 15 of, of Hebrews. So therefore, the theme of vocation is very central to sacred Scripture. There are many Old Testament examples of docility. The boy Samuel offers us a very fundamental attitude of any servant of God. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Joshua offers a similar attitude when the divine messenger appears to him. Joshua fell on his face to the ground and worshipped him as any one of us might do in chapel or with one another or in any place where God simply says, where God simply is. And the servant says, what are my Lord's commands to his servant? As we read in Joshua chapter 5. And Moses said all this even more simply and succinctly. When he heard his name from the burning bush, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Which some experts believe is a play on the name of God. I am. And maybe Moses is saying in chapter 3, here I am, I want to be like you. Mm -hmm. And so I think we read a similar idea, don't we, in one of the Psalms, where the psalmist says, my eyes, like the eyes of a slave on the hands of her mistress, so I am waiting for your commands. This is the biblical theme, it seems to me, whenever we talk about, uh, whenever we talk about vocation, the experts tell us there's a kind of an ambivalence here in Moses' reactions to the promise of God. On the one hand, the experience of the holy attracts human beings still with mysterious wonder. Sometimes it's overwhelming. So in the following of God, every once in a while, one may simply become disturbed at what he or she is convinced to be one's own basic unworthiness before all of this. At such a time, one feels that neither the removal of sandals or some external compliance with purification 
can ever prepare one suitably for such a sacred mission. We see this pattern repeated in so many instances of the great servants throughout sacred scripture. We'll look at a few of them now. Mm-hmm. So where will you begin? Which one? We'll try with Isaiah and then Peter and then see where that leads us. Isaiah confesses that he's being overwhelmed by his own feelings of inadequacy, his incompetence, his personal impurity. He was called to be God's spokesperson, God's representative, God's witness, and he cries out in chapter 6, that mysterious vision that he had in the temple and the burning altar of incense. What a wretched state I am in, O Lord, for I am a man of unclean lips. So how could he ever put the word of God into these un, uh, impure lips. But the account of his vocation goes on. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the altar with a pair of thongs. With this he touched my mouth and said, See now, this has touched your lips. Your sin is taken away. Your iniquity is purged. So we rebel because of our own sense of unworthiness, which in many ways is true. We are unworthy of such call. But our iniquity has been paid for at an unbelievably high price, not the blood of goats and animals, but the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, as, as Peter told us from the beginning. So this is the purpose of the desert son of Exodus, Exodus the seemingly monotonous uselessness of so many hours and so many days. It is all a preparation to go on onward, a preparation to go ever onward, being purified, up forward, upward to the daily service of God in persevering preparation for a final, eternal encounter and communion. For those of you who may have read the diary of St. Pope John Twenty-Third. Many long years in the service of the Vatican Secretary of State. For many years he served as an archbishop. And occasionally he would wonder, what does his life mean to the overall service of the church? So he lived a long life. In the last five or six years, he was pope. And he'll probably go down in history as something like the great Pope John or the Pope who called the Second Vatican Council. So this is why we're being purified to penetrate ever more deeply to the real us that's still deep within. So we see something similar with Peter. He had just told the Lord and said, listen, that he and his companions had worked hard all night. We worked all night. We worked very hard and we caught nothing. But then he adds the characteristic attitude of the only authentic response we should ever give to God. If you say so, I will put out my nets. I will go out into the depths. I will strive to go up higher. And seeing the effects almost immediately of Jesus' intervention in his vocation, Peter is overwhelmed as any one of us might be with his own unworthiness. Simon Peter saw this and he fell at the knees of Jesus saying, leave me, all the while hoping in all his heart that Jesus would not for I am a man, I am a sinful man. But Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid. The apostles brought their boats back, 
to the land and left everything and followed Jesus. So this is this wonderful vocation of St. Peter <clears throat> uh, as, as described as a response to the infinite power and mercy of God. So it is with Moses, he whose first reaction to the burning bush had been bold. I want to go and see what's going on. Maybe even profane curiosity. Now, once the, he's in the presence of this place, he veils his face, afraid to look, lest he lose sight of the holy God and coming down out of the mountain with a veiled face. So one might compare Adam's reaction to the presence of God in the garden after the fall. Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the men, Where are you? He asked, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and said, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Well, this is the way it is with any one of us. These are all attributes of one who did not follow the the word of God. So there is certainly a great analogy here in the presence of God caused both in Adam and Moses the same realization of absolute profaneness or spiritual nakedness. However, there were also marked differences between the two. Moses does not really attempt to run and hide, whereas Adam tried to hide so that God would not see him. Moses hides his face so God would not see him. So it is this fundamental basic message, have no fear, stand firm, and you will see what the Lord God will do to save you. That's Exodus 14 or Deuteronomy 1, 29. Do not take fright. Do not be afraid. The Lord God goes in front of you. He will be fighting on your side. In the wilderness, too, you saw him. The Lord God carried you as a man carries a child. All along the road, you traveled on the way to this place. So the burning bush narrative presents Moses to the Israelites who are about to enter the sanctuary of God as a model. When a person goes forward to meet God, he must be open to receive the word of revelation. But at the same time, the believer must be emptied of self, spiritually naked and filled with the sense of one's own nothingness. But there's this, there is this push and pull that you're talking about between humility, which then is immediately followed by encouragement. When Peter falls in the boat and says, I am a sinful man, Jesus says to him, get up, I will make you a fisher of men. Mm-hmm. That, and as you say, with Moses and many of the other greats of history, biblical history, there is that awareness of unworthiness, great humility, and then immediately God encourages. Mm-hmm. But I wonder sometimes in our own lives whether it, it works the same way but differently. I think about, for example, when I was a very young woman at the end of my college days, my dream was to be a PhD, a professor someday, and I told my professor this, And he said, oh, you're not Ph.D. material. So my discouragement didn't come from internal. It came from external. Mm -hmm. But the encouragement, I think, although I wasn't aware of it at the time, was came externally to keep going and not give up. And so I, I wonder what you think about that in our own lives, the way 
encouragement and discouragement can mm-hmm. work. We shouldn't succumb to the discouragement. Yeah. Surely there are great differences in our personal vocations. Every one of us, the Spirit blows where he wills. But every one of these instances seem to take place in prayer. The language of hope is prayer. Peter turns to Jesus, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Or speak, Lord, your servant's listening. Or what do you want me to do? How can I do it? All of this is a form of prayer. So the dialogue goes on, and you and for you and for me, with the great privilege of the Eucharist, we really believe and are convinced that this is the presence of God in which we make our petitions, we make our reparation, we make adoration and our thanksgiving. The many, many forms of prayer, as we'll see, is this great message of Peter. The message of Peter, go out into the deep. These words from the bark of Peter told to us by Jesus, teaching us in the bark of Peter, uh, the message even for today. So all of this is an element very common to vocation in sacred scripture, this human objection to a divine commission. The Israelite tradition was careful to point out that all the great prophets and believers had accepted their mission from God only reluctantly and over protests. The constancy of this element of unworthiness and inability and incapacity and unenable and all of those objections and excuses, the constancy is in all the mission narratives that it happens so often that this must be of great theological importance. For example, even in the so-called priestly narrative, which is usually a divine monologue, and hardly ever is one allowed to speak with God directly, much less object to his decrees, records Moses that Moses at first objected to God's challenge. Why should the Pharaoh listen to me? I'm a man of slow in speech, as we find in Exodus 6. So it should be noted that the protest of one is almost always concerned with his or her own capacity to carry out a difficult mission. Take Moses, for example. He was told to deliver a message to the Israelites, and he objects in truth. He is not a good speaker. How can I be a spokesperson when I don't know how to speak, as we read in Exodus 4 and again in Exodus 6? Jeremiah tried another tack. He says he's too young. He lacks eloquence. And this is his objection against the mission which God was entrusting to him. Take Gideon, who was commissioned to rally all the tribes of Israel to build community, to fight against the powers of evil, has a similar objection, very reasonable, Joshua chapter 6. Forgive me, Lord, but how can I deliver Israel? My clan, you know, is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least important in all of my family. Am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest of Israel's tribes? And he promised, is not my family the least of all of the families of Benjamin? Why do you say such words to me? This is 1 Samuel chapter 9. In each and every case, God puts down the objection with the same promise. Promise, do not be afraid. I will be with you. I shall help you. I will remain with the sons of Israel. So don't you, you, do you think then that 
that so much of this is helpful for people. When God wants servants, he doesn't want them out ahead of him. He wants them following him. And if you feel uh, small, humble, unworthy in some ways, um, helpless without his help, then you're more dependent, you're more trusting, you're more willing to follow. You think about Moses in, in the whole story, the one time he got out ahead of God, then that was the that. That thing was, get behind me, say, your way of thinking is not God's, but man's. So that, he said, be a disciple again. Independence is, be a good pope, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, and that'll show your love for me. But it's true. <laughs> Discipleship is to be a disciple, to be a student, learning. So get behind me, follow me, hear my lesson, and that's what the Lord asks us to do. And this wonderful message of gentleness and mercy and forgiveness from God Almighty through Jesus Christ speaking to us in the bark of Peter. And so in, in, in the Moses story, when Moses hits the rock to produce water, the one time he does not wait for God's instruction, mm-hmm. then is that not something that cost him the, the opportunity well, to that, see the promised land? that would not be the main opinion. The main opinion would be that Moses somewhere expressed doubt in God, and so therefore Joshua had the glory of leading the people across the promised land. But there are so many facets to this story. My hope and goal is to try to depend more on exegesis than anything I personally might think. But what you say is not totally unrealistic. Yet this tapping of the stone, Paul says, and the stone was Jesus. And in John 20, the Roman soldier taps the side of the dead Christ and blood and water pour out. Blood may be referring to the Eucharist and water to baptism. Anyway, that's a whole thought and study in itself. There's also a rather fierce story, not terribly edifying in Judges chapter 4. The success of the mission depends not on human talents or capacities, but God. God seems habitually to have chosen the most unlikely instruments for the accomplishment of his greatest works. At times, delivered Israel in this very male society from the overwhelming power of an enemy by the hands of a woman, Deborah, one of the few female leaders in the history of Israel. In Judges 4, we read, Deborah said, The Lord God will deliver this fierce general into the hands of a woman. It's a rather fierce story that uh, the general was cut off and wandered into one of the camps and where Sisera was or while her husband was out fighting for Israel and seduces him to take a sleep and drives a peg into him, killing him, which is rather a fierce story. And <clears throat> But anyway, it happened. <laughs> the Lord chooses so many great leaders of Israel from the least of the brethren, Gideon, Saul, David, all grounds for boasting are removed in order that all glory might be given to God. Because of our penchant or propensity toward self-aggrandizement, it may be that in the good things that God accomplishes in and through us are also meant to keep us humble. But for the grace of God, what, what could any one of us achieve? So Moses thinking he was the discoverer of God, 
is actually discovered by God. And Andrew was saying to Peter, we have found the Lord, whereas in truth he had found them. And this is really how this goes. It isn't some chance meeting on the highway of life with the billions of people on this earth. The promise is infallible. I will be with you. I am with you till the end of time. Jesus is Emmanuel. We learned at Christmas and in the resurrection, we believe we will be with him forever. And then, So the human initiative and human weakness, far from crushing the servant, remain a constitutive element of the one being sent. He will be with us. He will help us if we need repentance, if we need hope, if we need trust. He will help us in any, any way that we need as he sees in us the goodwill of openness to his word, to, his, to the message from the bark of Peter. The divine will seeks to transform the human, elevate it, to bring it up to the divine level, allowing us to share in the very nature of the most blessed trinity. How often, though, the messenger continues to resist even when he has been given the office and the vocation. We're all reminded here of St. Ignatius of Loyola, that great fear of his. Only God knows what he would do with each one of us if God did not obstacles along the way. And one of the opinions in spiritual theology is that the graces of baptism in themselves, if not thwarted, if not distorted, can lead us to the highest levels of mystical life. So the divine will transforms the human, but the messenger remains human, even when he has a divine office. The prophet of God, the servant of God, is not just a passive canal through which the waters of salvation flow. He's not just a vehicle of communication, uh, but he's also one with a genuine human personality, one who is not totally absolved in himself. The Lord's anger seems against any pharisaical belief that we are, any one of us would be better than anyone else. So from the viewpoint of human reason, some of God's choices seem very odd. Many think or compare facetiously the twelve apostles to the bad news bears. How they ever won any game seems hard to remember. But these great men died for the word of God and by their writings and their example still are the columns of the church. So we need to keep in mind in this great mystery of our vocations that it is a uniquely divine prerogative to choose incompetent (laughs) instruments. How many of these vocation narratives of the Old Testament and the New offer the theological grounds for canonizing incompetence in the church. <laughs> we don't canonize the, inc- the incompetent will raise to a level beyond their natural ability. When God so chooses, he can pick the most incompetent of all and simply by his power, without violence, without invasion into anyone's freedom, elevate that freedom to a much broader height and distance. We often think of the image of the desert eagle Little eagles in Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 32 were very happy to be down in the nest eating worms. And eventually the day comes when the least likely to succeed of the little eagles, one is called out over the nest, literally sucked out by the mother's wings, and either sinks, flies, or starts to go down. 
She goes down, the eagle catches the, the, the small eagle until this lesson is taught. So that this idea of, the, of a desert eagle is drawn out of the nest by the Holy Spirit. When I am raised up, Jesus also tells us, I will draw all to myself. So competent and incompetent are relative terms. I remember there was a Major League Baseball player who was a medical doctor, but he didn't have a very high batting average. So there was always this, say, don't give up your day job and all that kind of thing. So these are very relative terms. Uh, No human being could ever really be fully competent for the kind of divine mission given to Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, Peter, or Mary, or you or me. Anyone who was confronted with the vision of the holiness of God and giving the task to witness to the divine name would have to exclaim with Isaiah, What a wretched state I am in. I am a man with unclean lips, or with Peter, in Luke chapter 5. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. God's response serves as a testament to his merciful wisdom, and ultimately the success of each and every divine mission depends on Moses' objection is, Who am I? Dissolves before the potential one who receives him as his servant. So we may not be much, but we do share in the infinite nature of God through grace and call ever forward through the nourishment of the Eucharist to a holy communion that will last forever. So your theme over this hour has been very much focused on the consciousness of unworthiness of, of many of God's servants, their, their early unwillingness to take on the task that God has given them, but the encouragement that builds the confidence up to go forward, even stumbling, falling, picking oneself up again, persevering through time. So if you had to take this theme and apply it now to our own everyday lives, what, what, what would you say about that? Well, I think St. Thomas helps us greatly. Hope is a future, good, difficult, but possible. It's made possible. The difficulty is our incompetence, our fragility, our weakness of intellect and uh, our dullness of intellect and weakness of will. But the power of God, His grace, is simply available for anyone, no matter what spiritual state one might be in. If one is in lifelong serious or many-year state of serious sin, that can be forgiven immediately by the infinite mercy of God through the sacrament of reconciliation. It's human need which attracts divine omnipotence and mercy. God would say to David, Choosing David as his servant, the Lord God took him from the sheepfolds and he led Israel with a sensitive hand. David was a violent, sensual man. But once he was converted, he has this sensitive hand, as we read in Psalm 78 or 1 Corinthians 13. The Lord God searched out for himself a man after his own heart and designated him as the leader of his people, a man after the heart of God. 
and as we've seen about Moses, Numbers 12.3, because of his gentleness and his loyalty, God sanctified Moses, choosing him alone out, alone out of all mankind. In Hebrews 11, this beautiful necrology of Moses. Moses simply refused to be known as the son of the Pharaoh's daughter and chose to be ill-treated in company with God's people rather than enjoy for a time the pleasures of sin. He considered that all the insights, insults offered to the anointed were something more precious than all the treasures of Egypt because he had his eyes fixed on the reward. It was by faith that he left Egypt and was not afraid of the king's anger. He held to his purpose like a man who could see the invisible. This is a magnificent, mystical necrology of Moses. He had his eyes fixed on the reward, just as Jesus had his eyes fixed on Jerusalem after the transfiguration. It's a concentration on the goal. So he held to his purpose like a man who could see the invisible. The invisible, of course, is the great mystery of God himself. Then again, one of David's great prayers offers his insight into his response to his own call, First Chronicles 29. May you be blessed, O Lord God of Israel, our ancestor forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the splendor, length of days, for all that is in the heavens and on the earth are yours. Yours is the sovereignty, O Lord God. You are exalted over all, supremely. For who am I, and what is my people, to have the means to give so generously? Whatever happens comes from you. We are strangers before you, settlers only, overnight guests, as all our ancestors were. Our days on earth pass by like a shadow. There is no hope. Oh, my God. You search the heart I know and delight in honesty, and with honesty of heart we have willingly give, been given all this. Give us a heart determined to your commandments, your decrees, and your statutes. So our prayer after all of this would be, may God grant to us the great grace of final perseverance and our profession of hope. So, in a rather extended reflection on the call of, uh, of Peter, well, now look now, what did Peter do with his call before the fall? <laughs> Peter responded very enthusiastically and very, very well. Unfortunately, he failed the Lord at a very crucial moment, but if we can believe St. Gregory the Great or whoever it was that composed that idea in the Holy Saturday, exulted, or say, blessed sin that has merited such a Redeemer. So here we look at Peter's confession of Jesus Christ. As his whole vocation was based on thy will be done, Peter exultantly professed and proclaimed God himself. And he's presented in Mark's Gospel. It's interesting. Luke and Paul seem to come together, and Mark and Peter and some facetiously would compare Mark's gospel regarding Peter as uh, the antagonist in Charlie Brown with him always pointing out his faults and his failures. Well, Mark seems to do that. So, yet, Mark, in his opening line, 
tells us the story. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of God. So they say this is uh, Mark's Christological concern. Right away, from the outset, Jesus Christ is the son of God. So we read in this passage in Mark 8, we'll see this division of Mark in uh, as this unfolds. Jesus and his disciples left for the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, Jesus put this question to his disciples. What do people say I am? And they said, they told him, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and that would be furthered a little when he prayed in Elohim, oh my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It's Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. But you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ. So this is a tremendously profound and sublime confession of faith right at the beginning. So it seems that Matthew is much more interested in ecclesiology. Uh, this, this text is different when Peter said in, in Matthew, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus replied, Simon of Jonah, you are a happy man because it was not flesh and blood that revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So now I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld can never hold out against it. So in, in uh, Mark, it's a very simple statement of Jesus, uh, and when Peter speaks up, he is clearly the spokesperson for the twelve. But Matthew is much more concerned about the church. So as, as Mark presents the Christological concerns, Matthew presents the ecclesiological ones. Anyway, in Mark's Gospel, these first eight chapters, they're divided into two parts. Mark chapter 1 all the way up to chapter 826, and in this context we have the passage we're talking on now. Everything that comes before and right up to this verse under discussion, the basic theme of these eight chapters has been the progressive revelation of the messianic character of Jesus Christ. So in these first eight chapters, over and over again, Peter tries to show us who Christ is. Uh, and this is the message we receive from the bark of Peter. From Mark on, from chapter 8, 27, till the end at 16, the entire account is orientated to the church. This Son of God, in his humanity, will be crucified. So the first eight chapters are saying his power, his wisdom, his greatness, his goodness, that all of a sudden, at Caesarea Philippi, there begins to be a change. What happened there? This is the first recorded time when the message of Jesus himself was doubted. They looked at him, and many did not believe. It's something similar today. People brought up maybe in the Christian Catholic way no longer believe it. When the scandals in the church or comfortable life or they made other choices, only God can judge that or can understand that and, and deal with that. But we try 
we're being challenged to a new evangelization, to study the Word of God, the old texts that were, have been around now for centuries, and the message of the Church, and try more and more to understand where the Church is trying to lead us in this terribly confused time in which ideals are in conflict. There are different ideals of life, eat, drink, and be merry, but tomorrow you die. Well, that's one uh, one expression. Uh, but so this progressive revelation of the Messianic of Jesus from Mark 1 to 8, it would do well for us to know that, that this Son of God will die in a human nature. But the main emphasis is he's Son of God. From Mark 8 to 16 on, he's the Son of God, the suffering servant Messiah. So as we come to the end of this hour's reflection, Father, um, I think what I take away is the encouragement that the story isn't over. The story of God's action in life and on mm-hmm. any one of us individual human beings mm-hmm. goes on and on and on. And to try to stay away, stay uh, focused on that, the mm-hmm. way you say Moses stayed focused on the mm-hmm. invisible, mm-hmm. he stayed focused on the beyond mm-hmm. is is what could also help to give us all encouragement as well in our own mm-hmm. life's journey. This is true. And as that well-known literary figure, every man, Peter, Moses, Mary Magdalene, and in some ways Mary and Jesus himself would mean us. This is this word of God, to reread this word of God as a love letter from God addressed to us personally. This is God's epistle. This is God's testament, final will and testament to tell us this is the way it can be if you'll only follow me through to the end. So it's a message of extraordinary depth, almost endless applications. I hope none of the applications I make are too far off the true exegetical tradition of the church. I think we've tried to follow for the most, and hopefully only this, the more uh, approved interpretations and teachings of the New Testament and this great message that comes to us from Peter's bark. So this present passage of Mark is the conclusion of part one and the introduction to part two. Part one is the discovery of the Messiah. Part two is the prediction that hard things are going to happen. So we'll leave that for the next time. Thank you very much for listening to us. And let us pray for one another for the great grave of final perseverance in our journey across the desert of our time that we might persevere to the end and come all, each and every one, after our ambitious migration to the happy uh, promised land for all eternity in heaven. So thank you for teaching us again uh, in this hour, Father, about how to go farther out into the deep of our own spiritual depth using using St. Peter and all of these mm. great scriptural heroes as our ma- our pattern and our mm. model, uh, a way to follow in the long parade of human life home toward God. So will you finish us up with a prayer today? Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Church, pray for us. St. Peter, pray for us all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for teaching. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the program. 
and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.